Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. It is January 2024 and boy oh boy, the Huskies, the Washington Huskies have been walloped as this new year has begun. Coming off of the sky-high emotions of winning the Sugar Bowl and stepping into the national championship spotlight to everything that has ensued since then. We'll break it all down in just a few minutes. But Mark, my friend, the duck in this equation, uh, my name is Warren, I'm the dog, but uh, you have got to be feeling pretty good about yourself right now. Warren, it's a great time to be a Duck fan. It's a great time to be an Oregon Duck fan where we have uh, long-term stability with our coaching staff. We have more players on scholarship than we know what to do with. And we have a rival that has uh, completely fallen apart in, in the past. Well, <laughs> we le yeah, let's let's talk about that. And And I wanted to start off by just going ahead, taking my lumps with some potential names for this uh this particular podcast so these are just a few that i came up with uh you may remember mark uh about a month ago we had a podcast that i entitled a duck in mourning and uh i think it's fair to say that this podcast could be a dog in mourning we also came up with stop the bleeding <laughs> make it stop <laughs> Debroken heart, dude. Where's my roster? And uh, gone fishing, be back in spring. Stabbed in, be back. That was from our friend Jake. And from Tuscaloosa to Tucson, uh, by JJ. And then maybe one positive we'll throw in there, Roger. That and we'll talk about that in uh, in just a bit, but. Man, it has been a crazy, crazy couple weeks. Uh, as you may know, uh, I was at the national championship game in Houston. I had a lot of confidence going into the night that uh, the Huskies had a really strong chance to, to win that game, to win the national championship, and to really you know put Husky football back on tap, back on the map. We knew we'd be losing a lot of players after that game, but uh, we really believed that we had a good chance to win that game. And, uh, you know, as sharp as Michael Penix Jr. was in the Sugar Bowl, he was just completely off all night long against Michigan. Uh, Michigan played a great game. They deserved to win. They were the better team on the night. But I think most Husky fans believe that uh, that that the dogs did not play up to their standard. They did not play their best game by any stretch of the imagination. And if they had, if they had played their best game, they could have won that game. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that the Huskies were robbed. I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, that, that Michigan didn't contribute to some of the, the, the poor play and the, the breakdowns. But I think uh, in my heart of hearts and most dogs would agree with me that that was a game that we could have won and we just were not on that night. And so it was a disappointing, uh, disappointing loss. But, you know, most of us walked out of the stadium, I think, with our head high, you know, really confident that we had the right coach confident that we had the right system, confident that we were headed in the right direction and that we we had a roster that was going to be able to reload and keep going. Um, and really believing, hey, like as we enter into the Big Ten next year, this is this is a team that's going to be in the top four or five teams in that conference year in and year out. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm torn here between just being the ultimate heel and uh, and just taking shots wherever I could get them, or 
or entering into this conversation with a little bit of empathy. And I do have to say, like, I do feel genuinely bad for Washington fans, both on the Oregon fans know what it's like to have your team lose in the national title game. So we've, we've felt that experience. We also know what it's like to have a beloved coach leave. And I'm not talking about Mario Cristobal or Willie Taggart, but, but when Chip Kelly left to the NFL, that was very much a similar feeling of like, we're on top of the college football world or feel like we're about to be on top of the college football world. Yeah. And then all of that kind of gets called into question. Uh, I know there's some things about this particular circumstance that are, you know, different for what Washington's experiencing, but, but I do genuinely feel for a fan base that was, like you said, had everything in front of you going into that Monday night. And then to kind of feel like you're completely starting over from scratch less than a week later. I mean, it's, it's truly unprecedented Warren. Like we, we don't have, we don't have another team that has has had this happen. We've had teams that have gone from playing in the national title game to firing their coach two years later, Oregon being one of them, but not like one week later feeling like they're completely hitting the reset button. No, absolutely. I mean, the 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 national championship game was on a Monday. Uh, that Wednesday, Nick Saban announces his retirement. I think at that point, um, everybody who had a quality head coach had a little bit of a sense of alarm bells going off that something could happen. We have all kind of openly talked about the fact that if that Alabama job opened up, it seemed like Dan Lanning would be a candidate that would be highly considered. Of course, we know that Dabo Sweeney had uh, played at Alabama and it seemed like maybe that might be the one job that he might leave Clemson for. We knew that Steve Sarkeesian had worked under uh, Nick Saban and, you know, maybe he felt like that would be the step that he needed to take. Um, But I think most people were not thinking as Kalen DeBoer as being the top option in uh, that candidacy. But as it turns out, it appears as though he was the top candidate. Uh, you know, Saban was represented by Jimmy Sexton, who also represents almost every other major head coach in college football, including Kalen DeBoer, who took on Sexton as his agent uh, in October. And uh, and one by one, the the dominoes fell, landing, yeah. you know. Uh, comes out and publicly professes his loyalty and allegiance to Oregon Ducks, which prompted uh, kudos and respect from Husky fans. Right, right. I mean, did you see that coming? Oh, no, no. I mean, it, I've got screenshots of some of the, some prominent Husky fans on Twitter kind of echoing the, that praise of of Dan Lanning. But that, that does need to be touched on just for one second, Warren, if yeah. I may. The... The timing of Saban announcing his retirement, and by the end of that day, a rumor was started that Dan Lanning was in Tuscaloosa mm-hmm. negotiating for that job. That rumor was was put forth in part by a sportscaster in Eugene, Oregon, at the local Eugene TV station, who used to live in Tuscaloosa he goes on the air in Eugene on live TV and says, I have some sources in Tuscaloosa that have confirmed Dan Lanning is currently in Tuscaloosa. We'll see what comes to that. Well, that sent Oregon fans into a tizzy saying, we have a local Eugene guy saying that Lanning is in Tuscaloosa. And it it just didn't sound quite right. I was texting back and forth with, with some duck friends. And I was like, mm-hmm. there is something missing from this. Like, I understand that this guy is a professional newscaster, but like this doesn't sound accurate. And then sure enough, Dan Lanning was at home watching a Jason Bourne movie with his kids. And he, he tweets out or sends an Instagram video of, of him hanging out with his, with his kids and immediately kind of squashes that, that rumor. Yeah. Uh, And there was just kind of an exhale of like, okay, that's right. We knew not to believe that, that there was nothing to that. 
this poor Eugene sportscaster had to go on and make a public apology. Uh, he's not going to be a, have a lot of fans in Eugene going forward, but, uh, but that was a crazy segment even before yeah. the DeBoer rumors started up. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I said, credit to Lanning for publicly and quickly, you know, making it clear he was not interested in the position. Uh, Dabo apparently, you know, was either not considered or turned it down. Um, Steve Sarkeesian was not interested or turned it down. And when you started looking at those top candidates, all of a sudden you have a guy in Kalen DeBoer who was 3-0 and against Dan Lanning, 2-0 and against Steve Sarkeesian, coming off of a 14-0 uh, and season up until the national championship game. And uh, there, there wasn't a better option out there than Kalen DeBoer. And as the, the, the details of that have come out, um, it, it, be, it has become very clear, very obvious that this was a job opening that had been in the works for months. As I mentioned, Sexton um, became DeBoer's agent in October uh, not long afterwards, Je- Jen Cohen left as the AD for Washington, goes to USC. Troy Dannon shows up. Job number one for him is to get a contract for DeBoer. He puts a contract in front of DeBoer uh, somewhere around $8.7 million uh, before Thanksgiving. DeBoer turns that down and you know, declines and wants to wait till the end of the season. After the season is over, um, Dannon puts another contract offer this time for $9.4 million per year. Again, that uh, does not get done. That deal does not get done. And then the opening comes about and uh, DeBoer, you know, takes about 24 hours, makes a decision, announces to the team that he's leaving, gets on a plane. And the next we see him, he's wearing crimson. And so that's that's that was a pretty brutal turn of uh, events. And the new era of college football has only heightened and exacerbated the absolute uh, decimation that that coaching transition uh, has had on this Husky roster. So in addition to the normal things that happen in college football, guys graduating, seniors graduating, guys declaring early for the NFL draft. Now you've got any single guy that um, is not happy with the way things have gone down. He can enter into the transfer portal. He can put his name out there to see what kind of offers he might get what kind of NIL deals might be available for him. And, and Mark, I honestly believe that, um, that the, this Husky roster had so bought in to Kalen DeBoer, so believed this kind of fatherly presence uh, that he was there for them and he loved them and they were a family I think that the the depth of that betrayal really produced a wave of cynicism and a wave of saying, if he's going to look out for himself first, so am I. And now you've got dozens of players who have entered the transfer portal trying to figure out what their next step is. And uh, it's it's been utter chaos uh, for Husky football. And in the middle of that, Troy Dannon's got to figure out who's the next head coach. And uh, man, this is like a soap opera, right? Like this is pure drama. He's got to go and tear Jed fish out of Arizona after their dream season with all of their hopes and expectations for 2024 and rip him out with an offer that was double what Arizona was willing to pay. And now you know, every Arizona Wildcat fan is feeling the same level of brokenheartedness, betrayal, anger, and hatred towards Jed Fish uh, 
that so many Husky fans are feeling right now towards Kalen DeBoer. And all of this is going on while Oregon is sitting on the sideline watching the carnage and just collecting the spoils of five-star and four-star recruit transfer portal entry uh, and stacking up a roster that has 92 or maybe 93 guys on the roster on an 85-man roster. It's just... It's just a pure spectacle right now. Yeah, well said. It's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of different things, right? I, I do think, um, I mean, I think part of of the level of frustration for Arizona and for Washington fans is that this is kind of, this is new ground. Like Arizona has not had a coach hired away for another job, I think, since like the 1980s. Like generally... Arizona coaches are fired <laughs> eventually yeah. like like they they've never had you know and and they had Dick Tomey for for a great career and uh yeah. and he retired uh so they've they've never had a coach good enough to really be pursued by other schools so I think this came as a shock to their system for Washington you really haven't been through this either you had Sarkeesian hired away right by USC but even that was like Sark had plateaued a little bit. There was kind of an understanding that he had some real ties to USC. Like, like he took yeah. him from 0 and 12 to like seven and five immediately. And then it was like two or three years where they just didn't really seem to be. Yeah. But the, the season that he left, they finished nine and four. And they were, so, I think, twenty fifth, right? Like, so they were. So, so they had they had taken another step that year, and we saw what what Peterson did with with Sarkeesian's roster. So there was a lot of hope that that yeah. you know they were moving in that into that next that nine or ten win level. But I think the reason why the Sarkeesian, you know, departure doesn't sting on the same level as well i'll give you i'll give you three reasons number one i think that most people always saw sarkeesian as uh more of a mercenary than a an heir apparent to don james right okay so kaylin DeBoer, you know literally like hours before the national championship game, Husky fans were debating, is he the dog father part two? Right. 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 Like if we, if he had won that national championship, the, the trophy was going to be, or not the trophy, the statue was going to start being forged uh, outside of the stadium. Yeah. So Steve Sarkeesian, number one was never the heir apparent to Don James. He was more of a mercenary. Number two, you already mentioned he was from the USC family tree under Pete Carroll, him going to USC. I think most people understood it. Yep. Even if they didn't like it, they understood it. And then number three, and this is the biggest one within about 72 hours, the Huskies announced that Chris Peterson was the new head coach of the university of Washington. Yeah. And he was the guy that I think every Husky fan thought, okay, maybe this is the second coming of Don James, right. which, you know, if he had not retired prematurely, maybe he would have been that guy. But everything that happened with with uh, Steve Sarkeesian was almost kind of the opposite of the way it happened with DeBoer. And I think the other thing that we have to realize is that the whole transfer portal did not exist at that point. Right. So the, you know, if, if Sarkeesian had left and within 48 hours, um, you know, Azim Victor and, you know, uh, Keyshawn Bieria and all of our star players announced that they were leaving as well. Right. And going to USC, you know, then it would have been just, more of a knife in the in the stomach yeah well well said there there are so many ways in which that was different which just goes to my point that i think this was such a shock 
to the system for Husky fans yeah. of like, is can this is this really happening? Like, wait a minute, we were in the national title game and he wants to go somewhere else. Like, yeah, even if it is Alabama, that's still kind of a hard pill to swallow of like, you know, he has proven that he can bring Washington to a certain level already. It would seem like there is still there is still more to come. So the idea that he would want to seek out a different job than that is, I mean, it still is just kind of shocking. And and I understand all of the appeal of coaching at a place like Alabama. I, I, I truly get that. But to see a coach come off of a national title game loss and, and seemingly make an upward mobility type decision, it just, yeah. it just, it's just so weird. Like, it is. And, and, you know, if, if Kalen DeBoer had found a way in his career at the university of Washington to win a national championship, he would have been more lauded and cherished and celebrated by this community. than if he goes to Alabama and wins a national championship three times in the next seven years, like, yeah. For for the people out there, that's just business as usual. That's the standard. That's the expectation. He's just riding on the coattails of Nick Saban. Uh, you know, no one no one is ever going to see him with the same kind of awe and favor that he could have had here at the University of Washington if he had stayed and found a way to break through even just one time for that national championship run. So, you know, he, I get it. You know, if you want to win national championships, there's probably no better place in college football than Alabama. Um, And so he took that opportunity, but the timing of it, the, the collateral damage that it produced and just the, the sense of betrayal because of the way that he built his camaraderie and, the unity of the team around the concepts of love, loyalty, family, and dedication to one another. All of those things were, you know, rendered null and void by the decisions that he made. Do, do you think there is the, the, the possibility like, cause right now what I'm reading from Husky fans is that they think, they have a pretty low opinion of Kalen DeBoer. They're rooting very much against him at Alabama. Like it, it, there's not a lot of like, thanks for the memories. We wish you well type of, of um, sentiment, which is, I think how Oregon fans felt about Chip Kelly going to the NFL is it was very much like, we love you, Chip. Thanks for the memories. Go get them, you know, go Eagles. Uh, This is different, obviously. Do you think, so I, I guess there's two possibilities, right? Like if Jed Fish really gets things going and puts together a great run as a Washington coach, then it's kind of easier to maintain that like dislike towards Kalen DeBoer because it's like, ah, oh, we but now we got we got a different guy and he's winning for us. But like if if Jed Fish has a good but not great career mm-hmm. in Washington, you know, if he wins. 10 or 11 games a few times, but like never breaks through to that, like, you know, that level of like playing for a national title. Do you think in time Washington fans will be able to like, look back at this two season run that DeBoer put together and appreciate it? Or will, will the whole kind of experience of rooting for this fabulous team always be tainted now by the betrayal of, of DeBoer leaving for another school. I can't answer for every Husky fan, but the way I'm processing this is to say that, you know, what we experienced in 2022 and 2023 was uh, an epic and special run that I wouldn't trade for the world. Um, And so it was, it was awesome to be able to see Husky football back on top to have a 21 game winning streak, um, you know, over the course of two seasons to go 14 and 0 in uh, 
2023 to beat the Ducks three times in two years, uh, you know, to, to be the infinite Pac-12 champions, all of those things we will cherish. You know, and and some of the most memorable and beloved players uh, in in University of Washington folklore will be associated with those two years. Michael Penix, Roma Dunze, Jalen McMillan, uh, Edifuan Ulafosio, Troy Fautanu. I mean, just the the you know Dylan Johnson. The the list just goes on and on. Um, so we will always love those guys and we will always love those seasons. And I think we will always be grateful for, uh, what Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb and that coaching staff did to produce those two seasons. I think the, you know, the, the, the ill will towards Kalen DeBoer is purely around, the way that he ended his tenure with yeah. tenure with with the University of Washington. You know, if he had just even written a, you know, a, a heartfelt letter to Husky Nation, if he had maybe done an interview where he just said, you know, that this was, you know, the only the only job that he would have ever taken and and that you know, his dr- lifelong dream has always been to coach at, you know, the University of Alabama or whatever that might be. Um, yeah. It would have it would have eased the blow. Uh, but, you know, because of the nature of college football right now and and the the simple fact of the matter is that from here on out, when a head coach leaves a major program, it's going to be a feeding frenzy on the rosters of those teams. And, uh, you know, I, I would think that Michigan is watching this and they're probably going to promote from within if Jim Harbaugh leaves, because this is, you know, a crap show uh, for college football. And I don't see anything changing unless there are some major institutional changes that happen because, you know, uh, players have total autonomy at this point to enter the transfer portal. You know, uh, anytime a coach, anytime there's a coaching change, but really twice a year and as many times as they want and they can do whatever they want. They can stay, they can go, they can, you know, try to get more money out of their NIL deal, you know, renegotiate their contracts. And so it's going to be total chaos moving forward unless there are some, you know, major changes. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to imagine um, that any major changes are really going to come. Like I I would be in favor of a rule that simply said uh, you can't go, you can't transfer to the same school that your former head coach transferred to essentially like call it the Caleb Williams rule, you know, Caleb Williams followed Lincoln from Oklahoma to USC. You've got Arizona guys following Jed fish. You've got Washington guys transferring to Alabama to play, continue to play for DeBoer. I wish I would ask for a rule that um, made that prohibited just because then um, a coach is not able to poach his own roster or former roster in the same way uh that yeah. seems like that might minimize some of that but i think you're right that michigan is going to probably try to hire within to maintain some some uh stability there i think you've got schools like you know arizona went out and hired a guy in brent brennan from san jose state who he's coached at arizona his wife graduated from arizona his brother played football at arizona so he has some ties there. So I think they're hoping this is a guy that's going to want to be here for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not looking for the mercenary hire of the guy that's going to come in and win a bunch of games and then and then move on somewhere else. They want somebody that's going to be there for a while. So I think that's the next step now is, is every school is going to be looking for their Kyle Whittingham, right? They're going to be looking for right. who's the guy that can win, but also is going to stay here. The thing is, I think we all thought Washington found that. Right. That's right. Like, like, and when DeBoer was asked at his first press conference, 
at the University of Washington, if this was like a forever type job, you know, he was enthusiastic in in saying yes. And I and I totally believe that at that moment right. he meant that his his daughter enrolled as a softball player, right, or was set to enroll as a softball player. She, she would have been a, a a freshman this upcoming fall. Yeah, would have been a freshman in the fall. So, uh, so I think I think he was planning on putting down roots. Uh, what we don't know is when exactly maybe he started to have second thoughts about that. And it was it entirely the prospect of Alabama opening? Were there some other things within the athletic department that made him hesitant about that? I mean, I think that's that's what we don't we don't really know. Yeah, no, we don't know. We 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 can only speculate. But I mean, my my personal theory, you know, call it my conspiracy theory, is that. Um, Sexton reached out to DeBoer, maybe, you know, around the time that, that Jennifer Cohen left Sexton reached out to DeBoer and said, listen, um, I can get you Alabama if you want to come on as a client. And, you know, that piqued DeBoer's interest enough that he, you know, he signed Sexton and then at that point, Sexton had all of the major chess pieces uh, under his control. He had Saban, you know, he had, you know, uh, Sarkeesian. I believe, does he, does he have Lanning as well? My understanding was Lanning was represented by another guy that is okay. in the same firm. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean... You know, most Lanning, of the- it be said, Lanning did not negotiate a new contract out of this the way that Sarkeesian and Norvell did. Lanning oh, renegotiated right. yeah. contract last summer, and and that's yeah, that's it. Yeah, but I mean, I think uh, you know, just no Sexton knowing that he could he could move those chess pieces around and get a lot of his clients a lot of money. Yeah, uh, for- which of course puts more money in his pocket. Yeah. I really think that, you know, this was something that has been in the works for a couple of months. And, you know, I think that is the part that really uh, rankles the, you know, the Husky faithful. Uh, but, you know, looking forward now, the Huskies have hired a new head coach, Jed Fish, who, you know, engineered a remarkable turnaround at Arizona. Um, but you know, to your point, he's a guy that has had a lot of stops over the course of his football career. He's been in the NFL. He's been on the college level. He's been, you know, a, uh, you know, an assistant to a coordinator to now a head coach. And, you know, he certainly seems like a guy who's ambitiously trying to, to move up the ladder. The question is, is, are there, is there another rung? For him, whether it be, you know, at the University of Florida, whether it be in the NFL, whether it be at, uh, you know, another SEC or Big Twelve powerhouse, but he's he's getting closer to the 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 top. There's not as much room to jump now, um, but he he appears to be a guy that I would say, and and you know, some people might not like the fact that I'm saying this, but, but fish seems to be more like Sarkeesian than like DeBoer in terms of just the way that he carries himself, presents himself. I I think he sees himself as a highly ambitious, um, you know, go-getter type of personality. And uh, I think he'll probably, you know, do a lot to, to build team camaraderie, but I don't think he's going to be that same type of father figure that uh, DeBoer has been. And I think as a result, the players are probably going to be a little bit less, a little bit, a little bit less open, maybe a little bit more guarded um, in terms of their relational connection to him, how that plays out in terms of on the field, only time will tell. But if you if you look at what happened with Arizona, you know, Noah Fafita and and Teoren McMillan 
both have decided to stay at the university of Arizona, which I truly respect that. I, I, I admire their loyalty to that program, but I think it may also say something about the way that they perceived their relationship with Jed fish, that they didn't feel a deep allegiance to follow him to hit the, you know, to the university of Washington. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if you look at the way, so like when DeBoer left Washington and informed his players, it was a tearful exchange. Uh, there was a player that recorded it. You can listen to the recording. I did out of just kind of curiosity. Sure. And you can tell from listening to that, that like DeBoer has some emotion about this, that he, he does you know, feel for the players that he's, that he's leaving. Now, maybe that doesn't change your opinion of him or, or what, but, but you can tell that there is an emotional bond there that he knows um, is being severed by this decision. And and he feels something about that. You know, my understanding with Jed Fish is that it was a three minute announcement, basically, that he walked in and, and told the guys that he was leaving and, and went to the airport and, you know, and, and, and took, almost his entire coaching staff with him. And I, th- I think you're right. I think uh, now there are some Arizona players that have decided to follow Jed fish. So, so I don't, you know, I don't think he's like, um, he can't be totally impersonal uh, if there are some of these guys that really do want to continue to, to play for him, but it does seem like there was something in the connective tissue of that Arizona team that maybe uh, goes beyond what, what he was providing as a coach uh with that said i think for washington it's probably a good thing coming off of this experience to just have somebody that is totally different in their approach mm-hmm. that you're not going to always be comparing them to DeBoer. Yeah. i think i think he he's proven himself that he can recruit well he's proven himself that he can develop talent i mean to turn a one win team into a 10 win team in a matter of two seasons like that's that's a guy that knows what he's doing and he's been around the block several times. Yeah. Coaching at the college and the NFL level. And so uh, I think there's plenty of reason for Washington to be optimistic about the impact short term that he can have on the football program. And if it turns into a long-term thing, great. And if it doesn't, mm-hmm. I think he at least feel like he'll leave things better than he found it. Yeah, well, what he found was a team that was just hemorrhaging players. And uh, right now, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 63 um, roster players right now. Um, very young and inexperienced. Um, they, As you mentioned, he has been able to pull in a few Arizona players thus far. Probably the most notable name is star running back Jonah Coleman. He also uh, was able to bring in uh, freshman quarterback Damon Williams, who's a, a you know dual threat four star quarterback. Uh, but the biggest news for Washington Husky fans tonight is that uh, transfer portal quarterback Will Rogers has taken his name out of the portal again and re you know or, you know re uh, you know uh, approved his commitment to the University of Washington so we have a quarterback now we have a starting quarterback we've got a backup quarterback we've got a 2025 recruit that has also committed to the University of Washington Uh, which is a vast improvement from 24 hours ago when we had zero quarterbacks on the roster. Um, But there is a massive, massive gap between the University of Washington and the University of Oregon right now. And so let's transition for uh, the last few minutes to talk a little bit about what has happened with Oregon since their dominating win against Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl. And uh, it has just been W's after W's since then. So kind of walk us through what 
what the Ducks have been up to over the last two weeks. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is the Ducks now are, I mean, they're selling long-term stability, right? Like within within hours of these rumors that Dan Lanning was in Alabama, the next morning they had created like a one-minute video uh, interspersing all of the different times in which Lanning has affirmed his commitment to Oregon. And they have the caption, uh, if you're scared your coach is going to leave, maybe you should come play for us. So, uh, and 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 uh, it ends with a quote from Dan Lanning about the grass isn't always greener and the grass is pretty damn green in Eugene. That mm-hmm. has been turned into a t-shirt that, you know, people are selling. So uh, they're obviously going to double down on that, on the recruiting trail. And yeah. I think uh, that could really pay some dividends uh, in the long term because I do think as, as these different moves happen, knowing that this is a guy who has really um, gone above and beyond in pledging his commitment to the school that he's at. I, I think that has a certain appeal to players. So, uh, you know, we'll see with that. Uh, in the meantime, these past few weeks have, have been the Ducks doing what they've done the last two off seasons, which is aggressively targeting players in the portal. And so they have brought in uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, uh, ten players in the portal. I would say that they've got uh, a starting quarterback in Dylan Gabriel and a new backup quarterback in Dante Moore from UCLA, who is committed to Oregon, basically with the understanding that he's going to sit for a year, which is kind of an incredible thing when you consider that he was playing and getting snaps at UCLA, that he would yeah. be willing to give that up. Uh, they pulled a running back, Jay Harris, from Northwest Missouri State, who is one of the best football players at the Division II level uh, and has the physical skill set to really be uh, a powerful running back. And I think he will slot in nicely, you know, splitting carries with with Jordan James and Noah Whittington. Uh, they, they got a receiver from uh, Texas A&M and Evan Stewart, who is one of the most highly regarded receivers in the transfer portal. They got an offensive lineman uh, from Indiana who has years of experience. They got a big uh, run-stuffing defensive lineman from Houston. They got three different starting caliber players in the secondary who were all conference-type players at the schools that they were at. They got a kicker from Oregon State who had a great year, Mm -hmm. Atticus Sappington, a wonderful name, uh, who had a great year for the Beavers last year. So they have you know, basically brought in like eight or nine starting caliber players and a couple guys that figure to be meaningful backups um, and have immediately bolstered their roster in a way that has them right now on most prognosticators shortlist of like a top five team in the country going into next season, along with the likes of, of Georgia and Ohio State and Texas seem to be the other schools that people are really high on just in terms of what the makeup of the roster is right now. So this is, I mean, this is a situation that I don't think Oregon necessarily expected to be in coming off of this past year when you're losing uh, Bo Nix, you're losing Troy Franklin, you're losing Bucky Irving, you're losing Jackson Powers Johnson and Brandon mm-hmm. Dorless and all these different players. Uh, but I I do think that this is going to be the way it is under Dan Lanning, which is he is going to use that portal to immediately uh, mm-hmm. bolt talent on the roster in an aggressive way. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see how it pays dividends in the fall. All right. So I've got a question for you. And uh, I actually, I, I talked about this with our friend JJ um, in the days leading up to the national championship game. Uh, but it seems almost like it could potentially be a reality for the university of Oregon. So Oregon currently has 93 players on the roster, you know, and the, the NCAA maximum is 85, right? So they've got eight guys that, you know, really come the spring or August, whenever the cutoff date is, are not supposed to be on this roster. Yeah. And and the, the question that I posed to JJ and I'll now pose to you is, you know, with the introduction of NIL, uh, players can get paid a substantial amount of money 
um, to be on a roster, whether or not they have a scholarship. And with that money, they could pay their way to whatever school they want to go to. So my question is, 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 you know, is there a chance that, you know, 90 or 92, whatever uh, players might be on this roster and that some of these guys are just using the NIL money that they've been given to pay their own way to be preferred walk-ons? Or do you think that at some point in the next couple months, Lanning will release eight of those players to get the roster numbers down to 85? Yeah, I, I Lanning has been pretty clear about this that um, that they will over recruit with the assumption that certain players on the roster are going to transfer, uh, and I don't think that that's determined right now who those players are. Right, I think that will that will become clearer during you know spring practice because uh, they don't have to get down to that eighty five limit until basically until the beginning of September, you know, or or the the end, very end of August. So they can they can have 90 they can have as many players as they want on scholarship right now they can just only carry 85 during the season i don't think they're going to have 90 some scholarship caliber players by september i think i think there's going to be eight or nine guys that are going to transfer out at the spring i think the coaching staff has um has done a really good job of being clear in communicating expectations and i think they're going to be honest with guys who their path to play if their path to playing time is is blocked uh for the foreseeable future they're going to be honest with those guys that their best opportunity to play is to probably go somewhere else it seems like when that has happened uh in these past couple of years the guys that have that have left Oregon uh since the landing era have started don't seem to have a lot of bad blood towards landing or or the Oregon coaching staff um so so I think uh you know I saw landing on the Pat McAfee show and um, McAfee basically kind of asked him about like who lands two quarterbacks at the same time in the transfer portal. And Lanning said that they sell players on competition. And he said, we tell every guy that comes here from the moment you step on campus, we're going to be trying to find someone that's better than you to replace you. Um, mm. And and what they're appealing to is the guys that have that competitive instinct that they want to compete against the best. That they say, mm-hmm. yeah, bring in and bring in an all conference guy to challenge me at my position uh, because that's going to make me better in the long run. So mm-hmm. he seems to have done. I think this is the sort of thing that could really backfire if it's not handled in the right way. It could lead to kind of some real dissension if guys feel like they're just being discarded. But I think that the way uh, that this has been communicated to players seems to uh, seems to work. Guys seem to buy into that, and um, and yeah, there's going to be eight or nine guys that right now are bought into that. That by the end of spring practice are going to make a determination that that they're better off somewhere else. And I think that that's just accepted as part of the process. Yeah, I mean that that definitely sounds good. I think it's it's going to be interesting to find out. Um, you know, what it looks like to have to tell a guy who has accepted a scholarship, hey, you're not gonna you're not gonna get any playing time here. You need to go ahead and find another school to go to, especially when the roster is just loaded with four and five star guys. It's not like there's 20 or 30 guys at the bottom of the the roster that are, you know, lowly three stars. Yeah, almost everybody on the roster came in as a highly, you know, touted, heralded high school or collegiate player. Um, so no, no one is going to want to be the guy that's told that he doesn't get a, a roster spot come come the you know the fall. Um, you know, when you look at what Oregon has done in the transfer portal really the only school that comes to mind right now that has had a, a a similar amount of success is Ohio state. Um, they've brought in, you know, multiple five-star quarterbacks, um, you know, and addressed nearly every position of need over this off season as well. It's been reported, although, you know, you can take reporting with a grain of salt, 
but it's been reported that um, Ohio State has really amped up their NIL budget and spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $13 million in order to acquire this transfer portal class. Would you say that that is probably a, a pretty comparable number to what Oregon has done this year? I honestly have no idea. I mean, I, I, I have, I have no idea what any of these new transfers, you know, what their deals are. I mean, I've, I've read an article on the athletic about what, you know, anonymous players citing kind of what kind of NIL offers they were have. I assume that Oregon is uh, competitive with the best offers that are out there. Um, that's been my assumption. That's actually been my assumption about Washington's NIL program as well is, is that I've heard that those are two of the better, uh, more organized, well-organized programs. Um, so I would say that if if that's what Ohio State legitimately is spending, if it's if that's significantly more than what Oregon is spending now, I would guess that Oregon will increase what they're spending, um, because I, you know, that's just kind of the way they operate. So just bidding more, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I did want to share one thing though, Warren, that um, because we we kind of go back and forth on this offline about you know, how much of Oregon's recruiting advantage is kind of the Phil Knight Nike effect. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the money that they can throw at kids through NIL or, or this or that. Um, so one transfer that Oregon is still on the market for is uh, near and dear to your heart. And it's Jabbar Muhammad from mm-hmm. Washington, outstanding cornerback. Yeah. Uh, in the Huskies. So he took a visit to Texas and Steve Sarkeesian, he's from the state of Texas, has a cousin that plays for the Longhorns. He took a visit to Alabama and his former coach, uh, Kalen DeBoer, and it basically said at the end that he had wanted to make a decision at the end of this past week, uh, but then added a visit to Oregon this coming weekend and is now waiting to make his decision until he visits Oregon. Some of the recruiting websites have now put in an official prediction that he's going to land with Oregon. Uh, but I found this quote from from Jabbar Muhammad when he was asked about how the Oregon coaching staff, like who he has been in contact with. And he said, everybody, literally everybody from Coach Wadud, who was the cornerbacks coach, to Coach Tosh. Coach Lanning calls me every day. I've never had that. FaceTimes me literally every day. I spoke with the OC yesterday. I spoke with the offensive coordinator. Uh, it's wild how connected and together those guys are. And then he says they have stability there, obviously, with Coach Lanning turning down jobs and everything. Oregon's building something really special. I thought this was telling that here is a guy who I'm sure Jabbar Muhammad is getting very nice NIL offers from all of these schools that he's visiting, and he's very uh, deserving of it. But it does seem like if Oregon is able to land him, a huge part of it is simply that they have an approach to recruiting that not every school is able to match in terms of like the grind of what they're willing to do. You know, when he says that Lanning is FaceTiming him every day and he's never had a coach do that. I think that sort of thing kind of uh, gets undersold Mm -hmm. when we talk about the Nike effect and the Phil Knight effect and all of this and all of these, you know, inherent advantages that come with, with being at Oregon. I think all of those advantages are multiplied when you have a guy like Lanning that's willing to put in the elbow grease uh, to make these sorts of, you know, efforts uh, at a, at a star player. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, clearly Lanning has built his career on the back of, uh, you know, really aggressive, effective uh, recruiting. I think that's been his MO wherever he's gone. He, he assembled a staff that was really committed to recruiting. And now that is paying off in a major way. You know, it's pretty remarkable that he still has time to watch the born identity with his family on a, a, a Tuesday night. But, um, you know, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, you know, one of the greatest strengths of Oregon is that they are a team that is really committed to recruiting highly talented players. And they found a way to 
market themselves to those players so that it, you know they're able to to set themselves apart. And obviously, everything that Phil Knight and Nike has done over the last twenty five years has you know created the type of momentum and sizzle that um, you know really plays well with 18 to 22 year old, uh, you know, college football athletes, but that doesn't take away from everything that Lanning and his staff are doing to build this program. And I think, you know, that's why when Troy Dannon was, you know, uh, when he opened up the press conference for Jed Fish, he said that the number one thing that he was looking for, like the first of about five characteristics that he was looking for was a maniacal recruiter. And I think, you know, with all of DeBoer's success, it it was very apparent that DeBoer was not a maniacal recruiter. Um, You know, in spite of all of our success, in spite of all of the, you know, NIL, uh, collectives and you know the greatest setting in college football you know world-class facilities and all that we still were pulling in recruiting classes of 25 to 35 in the in the recruiting rankings it says something about DeBoer's you know passion and commitment for recruiting I have no idea w- how long it's going to take fish to be able to get a semblance of stability and traction in terms of recruiting, whether it's the 25 class or the 26 class, but, you know, by all accounts, he is a man that like Lanning is going to recruit until the cows come home. Yeah. And I think, I think especially with Washington moving into a a different and, you know, a tougher conference and having to compete nationally against schools like Ohio State and Michigan, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense for them to prioritize that. Yeah. Well, hey, we're going to wrap things up and uh, we will um, we'll we'll be back soon. It's been a, a crazy couple weeks, but uh, this is the dog and duck show. And, uh, you know, like I said, this if you're if you are a a person that doesn't watch soap operas but enjoys college football drama then you know being a fan of the dog and duck show is a perfect perfect recipe because uh, it just it's amazing to me over these last few years the massive swings in terms of the the storyline i mean it's like it's like a, it's like a, a season of Cobra Kai over here from one episode to the next. You never know whether uh, Miyagi-Do or Cobra Kai uh, are going to be on top at the end of the episode. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, for all my dog fans out there, um, enjoy the fact that we are the infinite Pac-12 champions. Enjoy the fact that we are uh, riding on a 3-0 and um, streak over the University of Oregon. Enjoy the fact that we were the national champion runners-up, number two in the nation. And hold on as we go through this wild ride um, and see what fish has cooking as we go through the spring game and then into the fall, we have no idea what 2024 is going to look like for this Husky roster. It Our work is cut out for us, but uh, for uh, every dog fan out there that is pulling out their, their hair and hanging on by a thread, go dogs. And for all my duck fans, uh, enjoy the fact that Dylan Morris threw for more yards against Michigan than Michael Penix did. And <laughs> enjoy, enjoy, uh, enjoy the fact that the only uh, Washington coach of the last 30 years who had a winning record against Oregon is no longer a Washington coach. So go Ducks.
All right, guys. We will catch you next time. Husky Nation, it's the end of the third quarter. Are you looking for the perfect tequila for your next get-together? The answer is born from a hero. Hero de Leon, direct from the prestigious Murguia family just outside Guadalajara, honoring their great-grandfather who saved Mexico from a horrible civil war. It's authentic, courageous, with great integrity, just like the general. Enjoy the smoothest Blanco tequila you've ever tasted or the rich flavor of our Reposado, aged for seven months in American bourbon barrels. Or the ultimate tequila, our Añejo, which is aged for 18 months in the same bourbon oak barrels. Go to your favorite liquor retailer or restaurant and ask for Hero de Leon because it's always the end of the third quarter. Imported by Zombie Beverages, Mercer Island, Washington.